Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie. If you are struggling in a high-conflict relationship, divorce, custody battle, or co-parenting situation that requires individualized attention, let Chris and Lisa at Been There Got Out hold your hand along the way while providing expert strategic guidance based on one's year's experience experience and success as a pro se, coupled with the other's high conflict divorce coach certification. I will have been there got out.com in the podcast notes. And right now I welcome back Michael Sayan. He's back on my show. The last time he was on, we talked about woe to the wedding band. Uh, I think that's appropriate for Halloween, but we're going to talk about other things. That was uh, <laughs> season two, episode 77. So um, he's back on the show today. And we have a lot to talk about as far as going through family court and how people treat us as we go through family court. And um, I will throw in some other things along the way. So I totally welcome you, Michael. How's it going? Hey, you know, it's funny. We were just talking about the old phrase, uh, how's it going? I was uh, sharing (laughs) with uh, Marianne that... uh, uh, I was in the, the Gulf War. I was a Marine in the Gulf War um, and the frontline troops. And uh, the term, how, how is it going or how, you know, how, are, you, how are you doing, um, meant a lot different than in our social um, kind of realm of, hey, how are you doing? And then expecting a fine, great, you know, like I, even sometimes a praise the Lord. Um, but when you're in the middle of combat, you say how it's going. What you mean is, do you have any holes in you? Are your magazines fine? Did you get any sleep this week? Uh, and, uh, you know, do you, have, do you need any food? Um, and so that had a whole different context. So when people, uh, but we know it was the sad thing is that people who go, do not go through divorce don't really understand what you're going through. And not only that, but they get a little perturbed if that you come out in a negative light. You know, if you come out somehow that you're complaining or whining, because I think in general, people believe that the legal system is still fair, but mm-hmm. us in family law realize that people are very corruptible, especially when there's a lot of money and children involved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it all revolves around money. Some people maybe listening to this podcast understand that, but people that don't know and are just listening in, uh, they don't realize it's a billion dollar business a year. That's right. Billion, billions. And uh, um, the, uh, a lot of political push, a lot of poll, legislators, um, legislation. Um, and the devil, you know, is, is after people, is after your family. You know, so, you know, if we have to be honest, um, uh, the government wants your family um, broken up and dissolved because mm-hmm. people don't know this. That, uh, did you notice, Marianne, that, leg- uh, that Originally, no-fault divorce was designed under Marxism in 1917 in Russia uh, under uh, Karl Marx, uh, and it was designed to destroy the family unit because what they thought, the government realized that if the family is dissolved, um, the women can enter into the workforce, and the government has more control over the family unit. So they actually were the ones who initiated unilateral no-fault divorce. Um, and even they, um, uh, shortly after 1917, uh, a short period of time, uh, divorce, the divorce ratio to marriage ratio was five to one. So people were divorcing at five times the number of marriages. They realized they started having a, a problem. 
Um, and so, but still today, you know, like the, the government really, uh, really does not want the woman to stay at home and to raise the kids, right? The woman wants small families, small homes. Um, it doesn't really care if it breaks up the family, because again, that's going to be more taxes. That's more work, more taxes, more money for the government, more power, more control and more socialism, right? It pushes the socialist factors of the government's, the big daddy, of the of the children um it uh the the government takes the place as a protector and provider of the uh of the man uh, for the woman um and uh she'll leave the uh you know suppression of um dogmatism of you know of religion or just the the social pressures of that a woman should you know be submissive to her husband so the whole thing about um, uh, destruction of families, don't think that the government is doing everything they can to save the families. They actually traditionally, especially under socialism, Marxism um, and communism, they always wanted the woman to enter into the workforce. So single mothers actually um, make a stronger government as far as financial because they add more to the financial taxes for the financial pot. But what they're doing is they're trading the social destruction um, because once you destroy the family, you destroy the town, you destroy the uh, state, you could destroy the nation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so there's a there's a consequence of um, having women leave their husbands and entering into the workforce. Mm -hmm. And they try to make it sound appealable to the woman to leave and go into the workforce. Um, they try to exactly. make it sound, yeah. Yeah, they, yeah, they still, they still do not like. Um, there's really no profit for the government when um, women want to stay at home and, and raise their kids. Uh, so um, it's just, it, it's a sad part of. Uh, it's, it's very important for real people to realize that the government. A lot of times, people think, well, there's a lot of programs out there that you know, want to help keep the family together, but in actuality, um, they know that socially, um, as far as morality. Um, and the longevity of the of the nation is tied up in the strong families, but they also realize that broken families produce more income, uh, and uh, it's it's you know uh, legislators trade off back and forth. You know they sometimes they're willing to take the immediate gratification of control and money over the long term um, success of the nation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they really don't care about the families. In fact. Um... They're now interfering with the schools and parents. And that's recently that's right. come up. That's <laughs> right. So what happens is a, a lot of people, and Marion, this is like really important for people to understand. So I kind of explained this uh, on, on the last show, but the, the, the parents portray. It, the parents portray is a very important doctrine that was started in England in 1608. I mentioned this before. The reason why it's important is because the only thing that battles, the only thing that can go against your constitutional unalienable rights to your family, to your children, to your wife, even to your husband, the only thing that can go against that unalienable fundamental liberty right is the government um, using the parents portray doctrine, saying that the the parent, the um, the nation is the true parent, or the nation is the parent of the child. Um, however, this was really twisted, the original intent of this. Now, this is a, um, so this is very important. I think it was in 1967 or 68, there was a famous uh, United States Supreme Court case called Henry Galt. It was about a teenage boy 
Um, and uh, th this is amazing. So what happened was a teenage boy, you've got to hear this. This is a really famous case. Uh, the teenage boy calls the next door neighbor, right? And makes a prank phone call. This is the next door neighbor. Now, um, what happened was since he was underage, this was based on juvenile court, right? So juvenile court started in, oh, the late 1800s, early 1900s. It was based on parents' portrayed doctrine. They based the whole entire thing on a, a doctrine. They didn't give children due process rights. Children were not, were not seen as having constitutional protections. Um, and those courts, the juvenile courts that the United States started was, was very laxed. Mm -hmm. However, um, what they did was under the parents' portray doctrine, they were taking children away from parents, right? Mm -hmm. And the parents wouldn't have the due process rights. The parents didn't have the, um, the right to a jury, right? The parents didn't have the right to do, uh, to do process for their children. Um, this was based on socialism because in 1875, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the entire case of socialism, uh, meaning that um, uh, like we're on, we're a constitutional republic, uh, but socialist or socialism was based on really a government controlled, strong government um, funded programs, right? That was, that was the intent of socialism. Um, you have more of uh, maybe egalitarian or equality um, mixed in there, but the really was based on the government gains more control, but the government promises to be the provider and protector of the, the people of the nation. So under socialism, um, the, uh, in 18, uh, really what happened is under the 14th Amendment around, I think it was 1886, but around 1875, uh, the government used the parents' portray doctrine to say that the nation is a parent of the children and they started to implement stronger um, protections for children. Now under stronger protections for children doesn't mean stronger protections for the children to remain in their family. What it meant was uh, it, it made the government um, being able to take children out of the home without finding, uh, without finding abuse or neglect as a criminal matter. Um, so what would happen was parents in the 1875s to the early 1900s under juvenile courts, the juvenile systems, which are, are extremely unconstitutional, but it was mm -hmm. based on that, um, you know, it, uh, we don't need, the government wanted the ability to be able to take children out of the home without pressing criminal matters against the parents. So that was the start of the juvenile courts under the parents' portray doctrine that the, the, the nation is the parent of the children, so therefore they have supremacy over, over the children, therefore they have supremacy over the parental rights or the parents' constitutional rights. Um, so under the case of Ari Galt, um, the boy uh, made a prank call. Normally, uh, if that boy was uh, uh, an adult, they would have probably just got a six-month sentence, um, probably some, um, something very, very light. Uh, but however, because he was, a, he was a minor, the government swept in, took him away from his parents, and I think they separated him from his parents for six years. Mm -hmm. um, and the parents, uh, and this is, and this went to the United States Supreme Court. Now, this is a, the reason why this is important, because the United States Supreme Court, on their dissent, what they said was, they said this parents' portray doctrine is historically dubious. That was the exact quote that they used. You know, this it was mm -hmm. historically dubious. This was the first time that United States Supreme Court justice actually admitted um, that parents' portray doctrine. Um, has no rule of law. There is no rule of law. It's based on common law, 
And that means it's based on prior court cases. It wasn't based on any kind of like uh, any kind of law, right? There was no mm -hmm. federal law. There was no, and, and it wasn't law in England through the common law courts. But basically, what happened was in 1608. Um, we have infant children and we have, like I said, adults who couldn't take care of themselves or infants, in, uh, they're called uh, imbeciles, um, but people who couldn't take care of themselves, they became wards of the state, not by force, but people like they just had no one to take care of them. So the state says, well, if nobody's going to be a parent to these abandoned babies, infants that were left at the church door um, mm -hmm. and abandoned by families, and if nobody's going to, because they didn't have, you know, abortion at the time, or, or sorry, that much abortion, probably. Um, I think they were taking like cyanide or they're drinking some pretty mm -hmm. bad stuff to kill the baby. But um, they, uh, then they would, uh, or they would also, same thing with the, with the adults who are, you know, retarded or who, who are handicapped, they would, um, you know, they would take care of those people. And they said, well, the nation is a parent of the children. Now, the problem was that it originally started as a very good thing in 1608. That was under the courts of equity. Courts of equity only handled very few matters. Um, they were um, uh, they were handled by the uh, the court. They were handled by the uh, uh, by the Catholic Church actually. So they're under the courts of chancery. Uh, the the bishop or a lay leader in the church would use canon law and civil law, and they would decide morality. Right. This this mm -hmm. this these courts were based on moral principles. But they were based on the moral principles of the Bible or biblical principles or canon law. And then what happened was these uh, courts of equity didn't handle divorce, right? They didn't handle juvenile situations originally. It was originally um, to handle a few cases that common law courts could not handle because the remedy, right, it needed more flexible remedy. Common law mm -hmm. courts could not provide flexible remedy. I know I'm kind of going all over the place, but it's important to realize that this parent portray doctrine um, in, uh, in the United States when it went to the Supreme Court, Supreme Court justice said that, hey, this is a dubious thing. Uh, this is historically dubious. This, is, this has no really legal precedence. It was basically just the King of England um, using his supremacy to rule over or to gain uh, control over the rule of law. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, that was the original intent in England. That was how that's how traditionally how United States has used it. Now, other doctrines have come from that parents. Excuse me. Other doctrines have come from that parents portray doctrine, such as the best interests of the child standards. Mm -hmm. um, people don't understand that in 18 around 1875, it's kind of hard to find historically where exactly it was first used. But um, and this was based a lot on the 14th Amendment when that kind of came into practice uh, and the constitutional rights of citizens, right, extended more. Um, it kind of freed women and children from property rights, right? They were no longer considered prop under property law rights. So it kind of freed them up because they're like, hey, we're citizens. This freed the, bra the blacks up uh, to be able to be considered people. And they because they were formerly considered uh, uh, under property rights as well as of, of the man. So it kind of started to loosen up that, that coverture laws, it, it loosened up the uh, property law, uh, property laws, started to give him more rights to, to women and children. Mm -hmm. So the uh, uh, in uh, around 1875, we have a case where a, uh, a father um, he, at this time, people don't understand, but a lot of children were working. They're entering into the workforce a little bit, actually, even a little earlier. Matter of fact, if you in Massachusetts in the 1600s, if you didn't um, train your child in education in something that would profit him later on, um, the, the government, this is in Massachusetts in the 1600s, 16, uh, they would uh, go in and they would take the children away from parents. 
not because of abuse and neglect, but just because they did, they weren't teaching their children a, uh, a productive skill to enter into the workforce. And then they would, they would, uh, have, they would have other families be guardian over these children. But these guardians over the children, the children were going to public school. They weren't getting homeschooled. They were entering into the workforce at, like, I think even as young as seven, eight, nine years old, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we had our children labor laws. This is mm-hmm. all. But, but the government was taking children away from parents that, that in the United States in the 1600s in Massachusetts because based on labor laws, right? They wanted the children to be able to be educated in a way either through school or be educated in, in, a, in, a, in a trade that was able to be productive um, and that would be able to produce not only income for the state, but also provide them with longevity um, uh, for the children, longevity as they became, eventually became adults and married. Now, so this whole parents part trade doctrine, um, like I said, it was used in, in 1875, I'm going to go back a little bit, when, the, uh, when a father handed his children, his two boys, out to uh, a guardian. Um, he actually went, he just left, he just left them basically abandoned. He gave this to this guardian to be able to watch. There was a family the, this guardian eventually died. So he had a, he had an inheritance. So the inheritance, he actually, um, he actually, while the children were still young, the two boys were still young, he gave that inheritance to the two boys. Well, what happens is the father, right? Um, uh, he popped up on, he popped up on the scene and he said, well, wait a minute, children are still under property rights, right? Because mm-hmm. they didn't really have the 14th Amendment at that time. So it happens to children are under property rights. So he goes, well, since the children are my property, everything they own is my property. Therefore, I want all the inheritance. And this actually went in front of a judge. And the judge said, even though the children are property of you um, and under, under your parental rights, right, as a father, under, uh, that he was able to gain the inheritance of the children, the judge said, I'm going to go on a limb here. And he says, I th- it's not in the best interest of these children for you to get their inheritance. So he actually ruled in favor of the children. So that's one of the first cases. Now, so th- it's always been the parents portray doctrine has always been the foundation of government having that ability um, to be able to, with abuse and neglect, to go ahead and to violate your constitutional rights. And it's important to realize that your constitutional rights to raise your child is a fundamental liberty right, right? Your liberty cannot be taken away from you unless, unless you're found guilty for a crime, right? That's why right. throwing you into jail, that's, it's taking away your liberty. Um, uh, you know, restraining orders, taking away Second Amendment right, that's, those, are, those are liberty. So you really are not supposed to be able to have a liberty taken away from you unless you have broken a law, right, a crime. And or the government needs to balance um, 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 socially uh, two people's um, unalienable rights. Like the, the old saying is that, hey, you know, it might be my unalienable right of freedom of speech to, to yell fire. However, if I go into a, a crowded movie theater and I yell fire and, and I practice my unalienable right, it violates other people's unalienable rights because they're going to run out and a lot of people might die. Mm-hmm. So the thought was, and this is you'll hear this case a lot in law. They say that, you know, when one person's inalienable rights um, uh, violates another person's inalienable right, the government has to come in and narrowly tailor that uh, inalienable right so that it would be productive for society, right? So so society would would be good. So, But it was basically used as an equality measure, right? How can we make it successful? How can we, it wasn't to be able to gain control for the government. It was to be able to say how to two into people who two individuals who may not even know each other and their inalienable rights clash, 
how can we go in to kind of help make sure that everybody gets a fair shake? Mm-hmm. That was the intent of, because um, government on the Declaration of Independence was to, uh, was to secure our inalienable rights. That's their job. The job of the government has only one job. That's to make sure that they secure our inalienable rights with whatever it takes, right? So, but so long story short, the parents' portray doctrine that came from England and the United States, the, uh, the courts started using that um, to be able to fight against parental rights because they wanted to favor the children. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, parent, so parents' portray doctrine was, was not used to free a woman from an abusive husband. It was for the government to gain control over the children. Now, it's still used today in our divorce courts, even though in the, when the 14th Amendment happened and the women had the right to vote under women's suffrage movement, the women started gaining more um, under common law through the courts. They started gaining more um, equality as far as constitutional rights, right? The women started gaining more constitutional protections from the court. So coverture laws, start, which was also through common law, that said that the woman is the legal extension of her husband, right? So he covered her legally. So that started to dissipate after the 14th Amendment because the 14th Amendment gave equality to women as far as, at least as the courts looked at it. And then they started changing the common law decisions. They started changing how the uh, courts looked at giving women constitutional rights rather than have looking at them as property of the husband. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and like under property of the husbands, we have such things like the rule of law, right? Or the, sorry, the rule of thumb principles mm-hmm. uh, from England where they would, they would beat the women with a you know, rod that was no bigger than your thumb. And we have a lot of that, uh, that abuse of women. So, the, um, uh, so long story short, the 14th Amendment, was, which was to give, um, uh, to give constitutional rights and freedoms to the blacks, uh, the, it, it, I think that they didn't really plan on it, but it also ex- it started to extend to the women as well. I think that was just a byproduct that the federal government didn't realize that that would eventually do. Um, that was used in the court systems. Now, even though today, uh, or actually after, after the 14th Amendment, when divorce would happen, the, the court started saying, well, the children are no longer just property of the husband, right, of the father. Now they were considered really property of both the husband and the, and the wife, right? So they both, had, um, they both had constitutional rights to their children. So that's how the courts were originally looking at it in the early 1900s. Um, however, you don't hear that today. If you go through a court system, they won't say that the children are the property of the parents. They'll say that the children are the wards of the state. So mm-hmm. what they're saying is when the courts say the children are the wards of the state, they're saying that the children are property of the state, right? Because under property rights, under property rights, they, children don't have the maturity, according to the courts, to be able to make their own decisions. So somebody has to make the decisions for them, right? So unless a child is legally emancipated from the parents, they're not going to have the full individual constitutional rights. So they traditionally had what was called part and parcel, the constitutional rights of the parents. But however, the government said, we're going to use a parents portray doctrine um, and we're going to go in and start protecting or taking children away from parents without proving them guilty in a criminal court of law using beyond a reasonable doubt or at least clear and convincing evidence. Um, and uh, so that's how come today you'll have CPS uh, getting, uh, getting uh, warrants for children. And the, the child is the one who's taken away in a police car with a social worker. And the, the mother and father sometimes never even have criminal charges pressed against them at all. And that, again, is because the courts have changed looking at children as property of the parents to children being property of the state. 
Yeah, it's just gotten so crazy that I think that parents portray just made things very crazy. Right. And the, the, when the Supreme Court said, I think it was in 19, like I said, 1967 or 68, you'll see it. So it's Henry Galt. People should use this when they go to court. And it basically, uh, it dismantles the parents portray doctrine because the Supreme Court, this is a Supreme Court justice said, um, that the parents portray doctrine has no validity historically, right? It, it's a it's a very dubious um, the exact you know like the, the exact word is dubious that, that the judge used on his dissent, saying that this is a very dubious doctrine. And this doctrine, the whole intent of this doctrine was to be able to um, to be able was used as a weapon. It was weaponized, um, and uh, and the under the juvenile courts in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, to be able, because juvenile courts were created in the late 1800s, early 1900s, but it was used there to be able to say, hey, we're going to take away children from parents without having them guilty of a crime, right? And abuse and neglect is a crime. It's still, even today, it's still considered a crime, but majority of parents who are alienated from their children through the court system or having TPR'd, uh, uh, their rights terminated, um, either through, like I said, you can, you can be alienated um, from a, like getting sole custody and divorce, or you can be have your rights terminated in a child protection service or a DSF uh, a case. And the, uh, there's been no uh, finding of a crime. Now, the courts don't want to bring your abuse and neglect to the criminal courts for the most part, unless they know for sure. Because if you're found innocent in a criminal courtroom, right, the, mm -hmm. the family court or juvenile court can't turn around and say you're guilty of the same crime um, because they would basically would have to, you know, to, to hand the kids over to you. So it's easier for the courts, the family court judge and juvenile courts to not, um, try to go after you in a criminal courtroom, uh, for abuse and neglect, but try to handle it in house and try to supersede, um, your fundamental liberty right. And these are your constitutionally protected rights that strict scrutiny always applies. Well, it just seems like in some cases, these judges are even ignoring that and just they go along with what CPS is saying and lying about and perjuring themselves on the stand. And the judge just willy nilly listens to them and goes along with it. Right. Because like, again, um, there's going to be there's financial incentives, you know, kids for cash. Um, the government wants control. Right. Even though that it, it, they might say that they want to have strong families. But in actuality, um, they would rather have um, women, women enter into the workforce for the financial reasons, and they would rather have more control over children um, because more the government always wants power. Now, that's why we, the founders of America, especially those who designed the Constitution, said that, you know what, we don't, they didn't really want, when, when the United States was first founded, um, they, the federal government was very weak because the states wanted the supremacy to fall into the states. And that's how it was until the Constitution. Now, the Constitution was designed because we needed a stronger um, a military uh, in case another nation was to attack us, right? So the only way that we, because the states, if the states had supremacy and there was no centralized federal government, which there really wasn't under the Articles of Confederation, um, is that uh, we were really weak militarily because states traditionally didn't give a lot of money and didn't give a lot of people for war. So we said, well, if we're going to have a, uh, a stronger nation to be able to defend ourselves from other nations, we're going to need a larger military force and, um, and, and also to be able to increase the taxes, right? So mm -hmm. what they did was the Constitution was created not to give more rights to the people. The Constitution was created to give more rights to the federal government. 
Now, the founders, right, you're going to hear the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist papers, right, or the Federalist and Anti-Federalist. Um, there's two rules of thoughts. People says, well, if we give government, federal government more power, then who's to stop us from being as corrupt as England, right, under Great Britain, under the King of England, who we just freed ourselves from, right, who's, because they know power corrupts. So they said, well, what we're going to do is the Constitution is going to give the federal government few and enumerated powers, right? And they're mm -hmm. going to be very, very clearly laid out. They're very, very few. And they were very afraid of any kind of wishy-washy verbiage like um, uh, commerce clause. Or so there's like a, there's a commerce clause that you'll hear about that, um, that, that the federal government uses uh today but there's they don't want, want to stay away from they wanted very specific in language um and uh they wanted to make sure that they had um, more power than the states but only in very very limited matters and that was more to like i said more to create a little a unity of the states collecting of taxes and to have a, a stronger standing army um which we were eventually able to do because we had to do that as well because when the declaration of independence we declared independence from from great britain we needed a military force to be able to stand against there so we did need a stronger um uh, national security as you might say mm -hmm. uh so when the constitution came in uh it did but what it did was the anti-federalists were so afraid that the the federal government would start um uh, abusing this power because traditionally it always has so they created two things. They said, okay, number one, uh, we're gonna, um, we want supremacy to be to the state and to the people, right? So you'll actually read that in the, uh, um, the eighth, ninth, and 10th uh, amendment. You'll really hear that kind of laid out that anything not, you know, a few enumerated powers given to the government, anything not, you know, uh, anything not specifically given to the federal government, um, it, the powers fall between the state and we the people. So it's, it's both. Um, now, the thought was under the federal government is that all states already had their constitution before the federal constitution. Before the United States Constitution, all the states had constitutional rights. So people had constitutional protections in their individual states. Um, and those constitutions were very similar to the federal government. Matter of fact, the federal government constitution um, took the principles from the state's constitution. And that's uh, through Thomas Jefferson and other people. And that's how they designed it. Um, now, so, but however, checks and balances were also created because uh, the checks and balances was so that one part of government would not become, you know, corrupt and too powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, those checks and balances, I, uh, the, my presumption is that the, uh, the Supreme Court was really supposed to be able to play a big role on the balancing of, of power because it had, it, it claimed that you could have juries, right? So jury trials came from the, uh, I know it's a lot of information, but jury trials came from a human rights document through the uh, Magna Carta in England. And uh, what happened was the, 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 in, the King of England was uh, abusing the people and taxing the people. And so they forced the King, as we heard earlier, to actually sign the Magna Carta to make sure that if they got, if they were convicted um, uh, in, a, in a courtroom, they wanted it to be by a jury of their peers, not by a corrupt judge that was paid and elected by the king himself. Mm -hmm. uh, and that actually happened in the United States. The United States and the Declaration of Independence, you'll actually see that one of the tyrannical moves of England is that he would appoint and pay um, judges to actually uh, judge us in the United States. Because mm -hmm. under common law, if you control the courtrooms, you control the law.
right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's common law because um, they didn't really have that much written or codified law. So it was really based on England was based on a common law system. United States is based on a common law system. And that's one of the problems with today with, with packing our Supreme Court justices, right? Because you're going to be, if you control the courts, you can control the law. Um, and so long story short, uh, so the, the checks and balances have, have kind of dissipated, right? Uh, you don't really have the checks and balances today. Uh, when the 14th Amendment came in, it reversed federalism because what the federal government did was under the slave amendments uh, that the states were abusing the, the, the black people, right? And, they were, um, and, they, and the federal government was afraid after the Civil War that they would just continue to do so under their own state supremacy. So what the federal government created the 14th Amendment um, to be able to say, hey, we want supremacy over the state on matters of inalienable rights of your life, liberty, and property or human rights, right? Your natural rights, God-given natural rights. Um, so what that did is reverse federalism because it brought that promise from the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness over to the federal government. And so life, liberty, and property, right? Or life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is not a few and enumerated right. It's, a, it's an unenumerated right. So what happened was we had a, a change of power under the 14th Amendment, and the federal government claimed they needed this so that they had to protect the blacks from the states, you know, um, uh, violating the, the human rights of the blacks after, the, after they were freed. Um, and so long story short, um, as, as that started prolonging, um, states lost 100% supremacy, right? States don't have supremacy anymore at all. It's just a figure of your imagination because the 14th Amendment reversed federalism. Mm-hmm. And um, the reason why this is important, and I know it's a lot of information, or maybe not even where you want to go, but the reason why this is really important is because um, the 1833 decision of uh, Barron versus Baltimore, the federal government said, well, the Bill of Rights don't apply to the states. And so states were violating people's human rights um, from 1833 until the 14th Amendment. So when the 14th Amendment came, what they did was called the incorporation doctrine. They started to incorporate the Bill of Rights back into the states so that the states and the federal government are now responsible for, um, for protecting your inalienable rights. But to do this, um, instead of reversing Barron versus Baltimore, what they did was they changed the entire legal system that it is today. And so now... Um, the government, and people don't know this, so under the New Deal legislation around in 1930s, the federal government made, it, made basically a deal with the states. And they said, well, you know, we, we know we have a supremacy to override any state court decision, um, but they started creating doctrines, like the court started creating doctrines, that the federal government wouldn't uh, supersede all these state courts' decisions. And one of the deals was, is that the federal government promised the states that they would stay out of matters um of the family law that was one of the deals however the federal law violated that in over 100 supreme court cases so far so the federal government as well as the united states supreme court have taken a number uh, of domestic relation uh, uh courts uh family court juvenile courts and they federalized them uh, they they granted protections they gave the the um they gave uh, the, um, the homosexuals, right, in 2005, the, the right to, to, to get married, um, that was, uh, you know, that was federalizing state law. Um, and so these, the whole premise that the state has supremacy and, um, and the people, we the people have supremacy 
and the federal government has few and enumerated right has actually gone away. And that's why we see our federal government um, really becoming the, the parent of the nation. They truly are becoming parent of the nation. Um, they're leading states by not telling them what to do, but what the, the federal government does is it tells the states, hey, we'll only give you money um, on these federal programs if you do what we say. So the federal government is controlling the states, but it's controlling the states by using uh, federal funding as like a carrot on a stick, right? <laughs> and the, the states say, well, if we want to compete with one another, we need this federal funding, right? That's the whole thing with like Title IV D&E, right? When it comes mm -hmm. to uh, uh, child, um, uh, for collections of um, a child support and uh, uh, child support reimbursement uh, acts. Um, but yeah, so this whole thing about um, uh, this, it's actually kind of amazing. So when the, when the 14th Amendment came and the women uh, got started getting more constitutional rights, divorce actually skyrocketed. It increased almost three times every single year um, right after the 14th Amendment. It just skyrocketed immediately um, because what it did is it, it freed the women from the, the coverture laws because under coverture laws, women couldn't own property. Right. They couldn't um, they couldn't sign contracts or make contracts uh, and they couldn't initiate divorce. So when they got started getting the constitutional rights, uh, they also started giving uh, they started getting the right to initiate divorce as well. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So the 14th Amendment gave the women the right to initiate divorce. And not only that, but they were able to get jobs. They were able to get property and, and homes and take care of themselves. So what it did is it created under, um, you know, under uh, the women's suffrage movement or feminism. It created a system where the women didn't need the men anymore, right? Mm -hmm. um, because men have always historically been oppressed. Uh, bless you. Men have always been oppressive towards women, just historically, right? That's and we see that in Genesis three sixteen, right? That the that one of the punishments of woman is that the the um, that you shall desire a husband, but he shall rule over you. So the rule of man has always been a very oppressive element. It wasn't a blessing. The rule of man wasn't a blessing of was a cursing, right? Mm -hmm. So if we look at Genesis 3, 16, um, it was a cursing. So what happens is that women, uh, but they always, they, they always had that desire, the natural desire to be able to produce children and to be able to be provided for, protected for. And historically, um, men have always played that role. However, today in the industrial age um, and the age that we're in today, um, women doesn't, don't really need, especially under the 14th Amendment in the United States, for, um, for men to be able to, to get property for them, to sign contracts for them. Um, they can pretty much do everything on their own. Um, and so, because uh, when feminism came into play, so did sexual um, expression for women. They, that came into play. They wanted, because under, uh, under patriarchy, women were conceived under property rights. So they were really considered more chattel. Right. And that's where you have the bride prices. Right. Because the whole bride prices theory was that women were the property of the father and then the, the man would pay, uh, pay bride price or dowry and that property rights would transfer from the father to the young man. And so they were uh, they were handled more as chattel. Um, so when the 14th Amendment came in, um, women were no longer chattel. Um, and so they no longer really had that, uh, that the, the male dominance or the Genesis 316 curse put upon them. And they were, and they were really didn't need to have a husband after all. And one of the things of feminism is they wanted to be able to express themselves sexually. You know, it was all about freedom under women's suffrage movement and sexual expression, freedom of sexual expression was freedom to them. So the sexual, so the sexual revolution, right? The roaring twenties and all that stuff that really came through the women's suffrage movement as they started to be able to enjoy their own 
freedoms from um, the oppressive men under coverture laws. Hmm. Well, you know, it didn't bring this nation far at all. <clears throat> it seems like, you know, now with what's going on, it's like uh, everything's taken a step backwards. Right, and that's because um, those uh, parents' portray doctrine was never overturned, even though it came in 1875 and the Supreme Court realized in, in, in Regalt, or sorry, in um, uh, 1968, I think it was 1967, they realized in Regalt that parents' portray doctrine is still dubious. Um, there is something called stare decisis, which is called Latin for let the decision stand. That's where we have the term precedence, right? So what happens was when the Supreme Court has made a number of decisions, it creates a precedence, which creates common law. It creates a, uh, how the courts usually handle matters, right? And so it's common to all. Um, this came from England. So what happened was uh, the, uh, I was sure I forgot what was going to go on that one. Um, oh, the, of oh, the parents' portray doctrine is that once that entered into the court system uh, and it became precedence, um, it's almost impossible to get out. Plus the government and the, and the courts don't want to let, let go of the parents' portray doctrine because the courts are not concerned about parents' constitutional rights. Um, they're still part of the government, right? The legislative, judicial, the executive branch. So they still want more power to the state. Um, uh, and so the, uh, when children become wards of the state through the parents' portray doctrine, the courts actually enjoy that because they enjoy, they, the judge, a family court judge enjoys the power to be able to decide how your child will be raised because everyone is biased in our, um, from our background. Everyone's just a, a, a biased person. We, we look through our own lens. And so when judges, they have 100% discretion, they don't have juries over them, they're gonna, want, they're gonna want to choose the parent that most looks like them or be able to raise children most like they would like the children to be raised. So they're not really choosing, their, their thoughts is when judges make decision is, hey, who parents more like me and I trust myself. So, uh, and, um, and so under my wisdom, um, I'll go ahead and choose a parent who looks and practices parenting um, the way that I would parent this child. God bless you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so it's really just an opinion, right? Discretion is nothing more than another word for an opinion, right? Mm -hmm. And when you look at the best interest of the child standards, right? It doesn't say best interest of the child laws, it says standards. Because what it was is it wanted to, this, the best interest of child standards wanted to not force the uh, judges to use a rule of law to be able to decide, you know, um, uh, very specifically what's good for these children. But it wanted standards because it wanted the flexibility of judges to decide for themselves. Now, in appellate court, you typically will not have a case overturned as long as a judge can somewhat practically apply um, their decision and many of their decisions to maybe a best interest of the child standards. Mm -hmm. um, before it was overturned, if they wouldn't, because the, the appellate courts would say, well, it's just the opinion of a judge. However, all the judge has to do to be able to have that legal force is to be able to, um, to, to make it any decision that they want, right? Um, mm -hmm. And then they can just throw a best interest of the child standard to it. And then pretty much it's unappealable in the courts of law as far as uh, uh, the appellate courts. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of doing this in a convoluted way with these school districts right now. The school districts want to teach this, that, and the other thing. And these parents are fighting back. And when they do, then they're getting their kids taken away. Yeah, and that's great because that's the, that's the pushback of the government. Hey, well, you know, um, if you push against the government too hard, they're going to take away your children because they already have authority under the parents' portray doctrine to really take away your child. 
without having you found guilty in, in a criminal setting, right? In a criminal court of law where you actually have um, constitutional protections, right? In a criminal court, you still have, even though they're really bad, but you still have constitutional protections in a, in a criminal court of law. You don't have constitutional protections in a family court or a juvenile court under preponderance of evidence because preponderance of evidence is allowed to use hearsay as evidence. Now, the, to, to terminate a, uh, somebody's rights or a parent's rights, right, TPR somebody's rights, um, they're supposed to use clear and convincing evidence, but it's the same judge, and that judge is just going to listen to hearsay. So they can't switch to clear and convincing to preponderance in their head, right? They're basically just using the same, standard, same standards that they're using in family court to terminate parental rights. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's uh, the government. Now, the, the government is in charge of the education, right? The education, I believe, originally started as a, as a Catholic or a Christian um, a, a organization in the United States. Um, and uh, it was very good, right? Matter of fact, many of the universities, I think Yale and a lot of other ones, they were Christian universities. Um, eventually, the, social, uh, the, the, the government and the, uh, started to gaining control over all schooling systems, the young kids as well as the universities. And now, even today, right, these, these schools that were once are, uh, still considered under the, the Catholic or Christian umbrella um, have, become, um, have become just totally defiled, right? They become, uh, they become evil instead of good. Uh, but what happened was, is a lot of people don't understand that they use the parents' portray doctrine in children wards of the state. Um, in your, uh, uh, they use that doctrine as the, the premise for making their laws when your kid goes through, uh, goes in school, right? So if you have a kindergartner in school, right, you actually, that those children are now really considered wards of the school at that time, right? Wards of the state. Um, and so your parents, right, don't really like, so you can't just, a lot of times if you put your kid in a kindergarten, you can't just walk into the kindergarten and to take your kid out whenever you want, or say, I'm going to go on vacation for a couple of months. Um, the government has through socialist practices, they've used that parents portray doctrine. And they say that um, the uh, state is exercising the children's constitutional rights. Um, so if you ever have like an example, a lot of parents are having court cases against the board of education mm-hmm. and they're losing every single time. And the reason why is because the parents are saying, well, I'm, you know, I'm using my constitutional right and my child's constitutional right. But the, um, the way that it happens, that as soon as you drop your child off at school, you lose, um, realistically, you lose um, almost 100% of your constitutional rights. Um, and those, they, the, the children are now under the wards or under the care of the, the Board of Education or the government, the state government. Um, so it's very dangerous to drop your kids off at school because as soon as you put your, your kids in a public school, um, you're handing your children over to the government to raise them. And that has changed from um, just having now the gov- now the Board of Education is entering into the social factor, right? Because mm-hmm. transgenderism and homosexuality, homosexuality has become a, a protected class and became illegal. So now they're pushing transgenderism and homosexuality and Black Lives Matters and critical race theory. They're pressing these moral principles on these children, and there's nothing that parents can do about it. Because under the parents' portray doctrine, the nation is the parent of the child. As soon as you drop your child off to a public education, um, you're handing your child off to the devil, um, realistically, and you're handing your child off to the government, and the government is, is exercising their supremacy over your children. And you, matter of fact, like an example, if there's a shooting or some, a bomb threat in a school, you can't go in and take your children. It's locked down, and they don't allow parents to be able to take their children. Well, that's a violation of constitutional rights, right? Mm-hmm. To be able, because you're inalienable rights, to be able to take your child. If, you're, if there's a school shooting, you want to take your child as soon as you can out of there. 
but the governments have under under care and control and protection and safety they can they can use that whenever they want to be able to override any of your constitutional rights and that's all based on the parents partray doctrine uh, and that's where the parent is the nation of the child As soon as you involve the government or drop your child off to a government facility or organization or even an administrative organization that's funded through the state and federal government, um, you're really in danger of, uh, you're really, what you're doing is you're handing your children over to the wards of the state, making wards of the state. Um, and there's different levels, but the Board of Education has grown so powerful that parents are parents have not realized that that they cannot push against the board of education and win and the and the court system under parents portray is always going to give preference to the board of education or a school even if it violates your constitutional rights or your child's constitutional rights because your co child's constitutional rights as long as he's in, in, immature right as long as he's a young age um, the state exercises the child's constitutional right not the parent Traditionally, it was supposed to be the parent exercises the child's constitutional right, but then in, in, matters, in matters of law, when it comes to government, the government has been practicing the children's constitutional right, or the court has been practicing the child's constitutional right, and that's part of the guardian ad litem, right? That's mm -hmm. part of the government um, uh, being able to uh, exercise the child's constitutional rights, and we're going to see this play out more and more as these... Um, as these labels get more defined as far as children's constitutional rights and who has the power to exercise that. Because as soon as the children become wards of the state, right, as soon as a paper, uh, as soon as a petition of dissolution is signed by either the man or the woman, those children immediately become wards of the state and they can even decide temporary orders, even if you're still married. Um, and like I said, but however, constitutionally, these reason is unconstitutional is because under uh, under your your children are a un, uh, unalienable right right a right mm -hmm. given by God a natural right that's protected under the social contract of the Declaration of Independence, but it's also um, it's it's the the Bill of Rights were nothing more than an extension of the inalienable rights of the promise of the Declaration of Independence, um, and so your um, your right to be able to raise your child is unalienable. That's how come the Declaration of Independence says, hey, if the government becomes so corrupt, so tyrannical, not only do you have a right, but you have a duty to overthrow such government and to replace you new leaders of your, to secure your inalienable rights. Mm -hmm. um, your children, the, you need to know what's an inalienable right. An inalienable, an inalienable right means a non-transferable right. That was from the third century BCE. That was a real estate term where, where a, um, uh, where a um, uh, property could not be transferred. Um, this was non-transferable. You couldn't transfer that property. You couldn't sell it. Couldn't get rid of it. Same thing with inalienable rights, right? Anything that God gives you is considered a natural God-given right. Now, we know what's an inalienable right because the Declaration of Independence mentions God four times in the Declaration of Independence. And your preamble saying that your inalienable rights were given by God. They're called uh, the the. Uh, God's, I believe it says God's nature, nature's God. Uh, so it does recognize that anything that God gives you, the state cannot take away from you. So the children, uh, the, your state did not give you children, right? You birthed the children. They came from God. They're given to you. They're given to you alone. So realize the Declaration of Independence was signed and we went fought against Great Britain because of these human right violations of against our families, us and our families to protect our families, right? The, mm. um, and so the same thing for today, um, you have a right, you parents, you, you do not have rights, 
the court doesn't give you rights to your children. You have those rights inherited by God, and the state can't take away those children unless it's for a temporary period of time, but that's only if you've been found guilty for breaking a law and thrown into jail where you have your liberty taken away. But you must have the, um, the protections of the criminal court to be able to have the jury, to be able to have uh, uh, the, the evidence of beyond a reasonable doubt evidence and not these preponderance of evidence, um, not even clear and convincing evidence, but no, definitely not preponderance of evidence of hearsay in the family courts. That is so much awesome information that, you know, I hope parents listen to this. Yeah, but I think parents are starting to realize how little control they have over their children now as the Board of Education has switched to moral, uh, a moral responsibility of diversity, right, of, of, uh, for black and whites and children of different colors as they're trying to push homosexuality, as they're trying to have transgender um, story time, you know, come in, or they did for a little bit of period of time. Um, they're having uh, books that are pushed in the Board of Education that are pushing homosexual agendas. Um, all this is because um, people don't realize this, but Christianity has slowly become or fastly become a hate crime in the United States, because whenever you press against a law, it's considered a hate crime. Now, homosexuality is in, since 2005 under a federal program, uh, a federal uh, through the United States Supreme Court has now federalized it. So um, if you say anything against homosexuality, right, that's considered a hate crime transgenderism say anything against transgenderism that can be a social or even be considered a hate crime so you have the lbgtqi plus um right now really um being able to use through the power of the government um because the government is supporting them by making those practices legal and they're pressing and they're teaching that to your children and and right now parents are starting to realize that if i Tell, I can't opt out of programs in the school, even as a kindergartner. If you say to your teacher, I don't want my kid to be able to be, you know, force uh, these, these moral, moral principles because morality should be taught at home, right? <laughs> education of sciences and math and education can be taught in the public schools, right? But once you start having morality and ethics taught in a school, forced on your children that's different than your own, that's going to be a constitutional violation. However, realize, guys, that um, the Board of Education is an extension of the government. So you cannot expect to hand your children over to the government and then still protect your child um, from constitutional and moral violations. You have to get your children out of, the, out of the public school systems. The public school systems, by handing the children over to public school systems, um, they're, they're still a government organization and you're really not going to be able to change them too much. Um, you'll be able to have some of your rights, but when parents start taking children out of the uh, public education, the public education will at that time, because of taxes, they get money for a certain number of students they have, um, they'll start going, they'll start changing their tune. But as long as you still, uh, you put your child in the, in the schools, um, and you go to these, um, and you go to these uh, council meetings, they're not going to listen to you. They have dead, dead looks on their faces. They're not listening to you at all. Um, so they, they don't care about your thoughts at all. Don't think that these council meetings that you go to PTA meetings that they're listening to you. They're not listening to you at all. They don't care. They only, mm -hmm. but when you start taking your children out of there and that tax money, um, for the, for the, for the schools starts to decrease, then you're going to start getting their attention. Would it be better to put them into a private school? 
Yeah. So private school, you're going to have a lot more control. Now it's still considered, right? You got the 501c3, you still got um, federally funded. Um, uh, whenever you have something that's funded through the federal government, tax exemption, property exemption, or um, anything to do with uh, state or federal funding, right? This, this still going to be, the government's still going to have their hand of control. That's one of the problems with the churches today, right? The churches mm -hmm. have a, they have a large debt um, they're in, in a large debt. And then also they have the 501 C3. Um, and so what it does is, is it, they still churches, even today, they lose a little bit of that. You're trading your, your, uh, supremacy for, um, for, uh, socialism in a sense, right. To be able to, Hey, government help me out financially. Um, like welfare programs and so forth. You always, you're always giving away a little bit of your rights to be able to have the government to protect you and to provide for you. Um, but yeah, so it's even a, even a, um, uh, even a private school that's federally and state funded or receives state, state and federal funds, um, or has a 501c3 or property tax, they're still going to have a lot of government involvement with the education factors. Um, if you really want to be free of that stuff, you really have to start homeschooling. But that means that we need to have the families need to stay together. And that means that the, the woman needs to stay at home to be able to raise the children uh, and to teach the children. Um, and then that's going back to a, uh, a patriarchal uh, style marriage that you'll see in, in the Bible, right? In the New Testament, the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. But um, when, uh, like I said, the women's, the 14th Amendment freed the women from the, um, from the coverture laws, which in, in turn is women wanted to free themselves from the abuse of male power because men have a tendency to abuse power. People who have power have a tendency to abuse it, even in families. So women had 100% right to say, I want, I want to be able to free myself from my husband if, he, you know, he, if he's oppressive to me, if he is verbally abusive, right? However, the Bible says differently. The Bible says that um, the woman was not supposed to be able to initiate divorce. She never had the right to initiate divorce under the law of Moses. Only the, the men could. Um, and that because one of the things is that, you know, um, if children, put it this way, if children have the freedom to be able to leave a family whenever they felt oppressed, and they were able to be taken care of by the government, we'd have a lot more children leaving families as well. It's just a natural byproduct of us being able to, trying to flee the suppressive movement. However, authority was set in, in scripture, um, and the women were designed to be followers, uh, and men were designed to be leaders. Um, but the only way to save your child really is to be in an intact family. Matter of fact, Marianne, if you're going through, um, if you're going through juvenile court and you're trying to have your rights terminated through child protection services, human services, or DCF, if you're trying, if, if they hate mothers and fathers working together, because both the mother and the father, they can go after one parent, but they, they have almost, it's almost, it's very, very tough for them to go after two parents. Mm -hmm. Um, because, because when they go after two parents, they have to say, well, two parents, they have, they are abusive. They are druggies. It's very hard for them to do that. So as long as you are, as uh, long as families are intact, um, the government really can't go in and swoop your children under child protection services as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you um, also wrote an excellent book on um, the religious. Um, it's mostly for priests, pastors, rabbis. Um, tell us about that book that you wrote. Yeah. So what I did was when I was going through Bible college, um, like I was, my mom was married and divorced twice before. And, you know, so we were raised, um, and my mom was raising four kids by herself, two from one husband, two from another. Um, and when I went through the after Marine Corps, I went into the Bible college. 
um, I think just because of my familiarity with, with divorce, um, I really picked up that divorce remarriage topic. Now I wasn't dating anybody. I was a young guy, like 21, just out of, uh, just out of Marine Corps. And, um, uh, and so I got out of the Gulf war. And so, um, I was, uh, I was, I picked up that man and I was like, wow, you know, divorce remarriage was supposed to be really easily understood, but it seems that the Christians are just as confused about it as the Jews were in the old Testament, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, why is it, why do we have still the same unclarity? Cause Jesus made it so simple with very few words, right? Very few scriptures. He spoke about the issues of marriage, divorce or remarriage. Why are we still arguing about it 2000 years later? Because mm-hmm. in the, uh, in the, in the, the gospel accounts and then the first Corinthians, it seemed like it was pretty much an accepted, you know, premise. Now, historically, as the Catholicism, um, it really took over power at the centralized church. Um, and then it became part with the state, right? We, we hear about that, um, in 380, I think it was. And then, um, the, uh, you know, the power of the Catholic, the, the power of the Catholic church, is that um, they started implementing these, uh, changing the divorce laws, right? Based on a biblical, based on biblical premise, premise. Um, and this is based on canon scripture through pretty much a lot, a lot of history, most of history. Um, and this is under uh, under the Roman, right? The Roman occupation as the one of the Caesars. I, as, I forgot who it was, but he actually became a Christian, uh, and then he implemented implemented those Christian values and changed it from the Greco-Roman practices of divorce or marriage was where everybody was getting divorced and remarrying, and they had child marriages, and I mean, like homosexual child marriages is really sick. Is that um, when this when uh, at 300 AD, AD 386 or something 80 when that one um, I can't remember who it was but he uh, he actually said you know he he became a Christian implemented the Christian principles into their state laws um, the they they stopped giving divorce matter of fact they would only allow somebody to annul divorce. So divorce was uh, still permitted for the man. The woman wasn't allowed to divorce usually during these times um, from, from 300 AD um, on up until 1800s uh, in England for the most part. Um, the women were not able to divorce based on biblical uh, principles. So my, Bible actually, my book actually talks about um, why women were not allowed to divorce under the law of Moses and how we, how we use that today in today's uh, um, uh, you know, feminist or egalitarian culture. Um, you know, how do we how do we use the laws today under a different social right, under a different social factor? And I still I present the case that um, women really shouldn't have that that right to divorce because it was never granted to them according to Scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New. And it just creates a problem, which we saw in 1875 in the women's suffrage movement. And this is right now what we're living in today is a byproduct of really giving men and right equal uh, men and women equal rights now men and women have equal value and they just have different roles but as far as the legal system was concerned uh and the scriptures this is according to numbers 30 numbers 30 it said that um a woman remained under the or a young girl remained under the authority of her father in her youth as long as he was under his roof but when then when when she got a husband that 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 uh, the authority would transfer to the to the man, so the woman never left the home. But it does say in uh, Numbers thirty eight nine, it says, however, the widow and the divorced woman, right, she doesn't fall under the supremacy of a man, right? She doesn't fall under the authority of a man. So a divorced woman or a widow, they had a lot more freedom. But there was nothing in the Bible that talked about girls who were eighteen years old who moved out on their own. Um, and uh, were able to practice their, you know, their their own freedoms, and uh, no longer under the the, the, the 
the roof of the father. So the roof of the father was always based on biblical principles, the bride price, and be able to keep the sexual purity of the children. But long story short, so my book just kind of talks about that. Um, and uh, it, it helps people to look in a different light as far as um, third world countries um, and the Bible and, and how we should look at it today. But today, like I said, right now, if people say, well, where's your proof text? You just look at socially today, where we're at today, and just see what divorce has done, right? Divorce has allowed the government to come in and to take our children, to take our money, and to um, to pit the man and woman against one another, right? Mm -hmm. And the government is the one who is gaining uh, power from that, and they're gain uh, and they're and they're gaining our children. We have uh, well, we have five hundred thousand children in in the foster care system in the United States today, mm -hmm. and these are all based on premises. As soon as we started letting the government in, as soon as we started having divorce, um, the uh, we really lose that um, that family structure and that family protection. Uh, the, the 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 house or the uh, the king's no longer it was the king of the castle, right? The, 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 it was always traditionally looked at is that when you had your house, you were your king of that house mm -hmm. and you, your, your wife and your children were inalienable rights. Mm -hmm. and, no, and the government couldn't come in. Nobody could, domestic or, for, or foreign, could come mm -hmm. in and take your child or take anything from you as long as you were in your house, right? You had your gun and protected your inalienable rights. However, mm -hmm. today, you know, the government will walk right in even without a warrant and they'll, uh, the police will strong arm you into uh, and trick you into either signing, giving your children, uh, giving the courts rights over the children um, and say, we allowed you to keep your children as long as you sign this uh, paper. But it's really just saying, hey, I'm giving, I'm releasing my authority of my children to the state. Or they say, so we're going to threaten, we're going to take away your children right now. Mm -hmm. And under duress um, and mm -hmm. under illegal and unconstitutional principles, the government is taking children away from families. Mm -hmm. Most definitely. Your book was, is called The Cure for Divorce in the Kingdom of God, <clears throat> and it can be found on Amazon. Yeah, I actually changed the title a little bit. I might oh, go back right. with that. Oh, that's right. That's yeah, right. No, it's, it's okay, because like, I was trying to see what kind of works, because when, when people saw The Cure for Divorce, um, a lot of people didn't use this as a doctrinal, like for divorce, marriage, divorce, or remarriage. They were just saying, oh, well, the cure is just, you know, hey, love each other and be kind for each other. Well, that's not what the, the it's, it's a historical it's a historical look of 3,000 years of divorce. So I changed the title to um, Remarriage and Adultery um, in the Bible. But however, I'm still playing with the title. Uh, but if you can find it right now under Remarriage and Adultery, um, I might, I'll probably keep it under that. Um, uh, and you can see it under Kendall. You can get it for free or, or 99 cents. There's a choice in there. Or you can always email me and I can email you a free copy of PDF it to you. Um, uh, 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 you can just e and email me. I'm sure we'll, you'll probably give my email address at the bottom of this video. And they can just yes. get in touch with me. I could just say, I guess email it to them. So, oh yeah, I'll put that in the podcast notes. And I totally thank you for coming on the show and explaining thank you. all of this. This was great. This was a great historical lesson and what's going on right now, which is very scary. That's right. And another Halloween scary uh, yes. um, production, right? Another right. scary Halloween production. That's exactly. It. it really is. It, it really, really is. It really is. Hey, don't jump off. Slam the Gavels a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again here with Michael. I will have him back on another exciting guest. And I thank you again, Michael. Thank you. Thanks. Awesome.